It's me, Alex. Uh, welcome back to the show. Tonight I have on with me Dr. C.S. Matthews, a.k.a. Wham, Dr. Wham, and all sorts of other things. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm more tired than I'd prefer being, but it's okay for, for a Sunday afternoon. So Yeah, I think that's acceptable. You know, it's the whole day off concept. Yes. Uh, so you are the author of Mysterious Beauty, Living in the Paranormal, sorry, Living with the Paranormal in the Hudson Valley. Yes, yes. Living in the paranormal sometimes happens too, but but uh, living with the paranormal is the title. Yes, yeah. Accuracy versus you know experiential. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, what's your? I mean, can you give a brief kind of sketch outline of what your background is? You know, how um, where you come from? Uh, well. If, with regard to the book, yeah, know, that's what I mean. Term, yeah. in, in terms of my credentials, um, I wrote the book at least partially from an academic perspective, uh, partially, uh, and that's just simply to provide some of the theoretical underpinning for some of the book. Uh, I have a a master's in religious studies, and um, I specialized in religious and spiritual experiences and mysticism and the paranormal and popular culture. Uh, I was fortunate in that I, I had uh, advisors in my program that were interested in those things. One of the, uh, one of my advisors was, uh, is, or she's retired now, but was Sandra Zimdar Schwartz, who is um, widely regarded as one of the international scholarly experts on um, Marian apparitions. So I was able to, you know, parlay my interest in UFOs and other paranormal stuff into my master's thesis. And then my uh, PhD is in American studies, and I specialized in American cultural studies. So I focused on the history of race and religion in the United States and, um, again, uh, the paranormal and uh, um, popular culture. But I focused in this regard I looked at uh, um, alien abduction narratives in the United States and, uh, or, you know, contact stories. And a lot of my dissertation focuses on the very, very real differences um, uh, in those narratives, depending on what um, uh, communities you consult. So the, the, the sort of mainstream alien abduction narrative really frankly, comes from white sources. And if you go into the African-American community or the Latinx community, you'll find that there are, or the Native American community, you'll find that there are longstanding um, narrative traditions of various types of alien, um, uh, even extraterrestrial contact and uh, um, abduction in some cases. And those narratives are quite different than the mainstream narratives. So that's sort of what I focused on. 
Uh, I'm I'm only doing a little bit of that in the book. You know, I I do focus on native some native traditions and and pull in in the second part of the book. Um, mentioning African-American and other, uh, or basically the lack of, of study uh, of those traditions in the Hudson Valley specifically. But um, so that's sort of my academic background. Uh, from uh, a paranormal perspective, I've been studying paranormal uh, um, experiences and um, doing that kind of research since I was about 10 years old, literally. So at this point, it's been almost 50 years because I'm almost 60. So, um, and I've, you know, I've done this in various capacities there. I've had, uh, I've been a member of MUFON and not, and, uh, you know, during the 1990s, late eighties and early nineties, when, you know, abductions were all the rage, uh, I went and I, I, I did a full sort of sweep of the circuit of UFO abduction conferences in the, in the country, in North America. And, you know, met a lot of people, had conversations with uh, mo uh, most of the people at one point or another who have been big names, you know, in, in the field. And uh, but I've, I've also sort of kept to myself in a way because I've, I've, I've really wanted to concentrate on personal individual experiences of these things and especially their transformative effect. And so uh, and, you know, there's just it, the, the whole paranormal field is kind of faddish in a way. And so I, I didn't want to get caught up in that. So um, I've kind of gone in and out of the larger community. And so this book sort of represents me, sort of my offering to the paranormal community here in the Hudson Valley, which is a fairly extensive community. If you take all of the different angles of it, you know, ghosts and cryptids and UFOs and all, you know, and, and even just weird events that can't be categorized into account. So is that enough? Oh, yeah. No, that's beautiful. No, thank you. I didn't want to interrupt. I was like, oh, this is much better. I have no follow-up questions. You do them for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I was actually, I was raised just outside the Hudson Valley. I was, I'm from northern New Jersey originally. So uh -huh. uh, re reading the book was, one, wonderful to read the old names I haven't heard in forever. Like just kind of, you know, just native words. I live in Portland, Oregon now. So there's an entire different group of, you know, native languages but it's so nice to read again and then just kind of reminded of like oh yeah i did grow up in an incredibly weird area of the world like i took it for granted that that's just the world that you live in but now it's weird like you had a section on bannerman island which i haven't thought of in 15 years but i'm like oh yeah that was like this you know spooky thing that's just part of life growing up in the you know the kind of hudson adjacent world Right. Well, and that's that was sort of the point uh, in many ways. The larger point of the book is that when I moved to this area, um, I mean, I knew that it had a reputation, you know, um, and and it's probably more just, uh, you know, about ghosts and stuff, you know, Washington Irving and all of that. But I had really no idea just how deeply ingrained the the just the concept of things being haunted or odd things happening just all the time. <laughs> it's not that people don't get freaked out about them, but um, it, they, it, it's almost like there, there are whole communities that just seem to assume that weird stuff happens. And so they, they accept this as part of their life. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, just that alone is fascinating that it's that there there are there are communities 
here in the Hudson Valley that where, where strange things are so common um, or commonly understood that they're just accepted along with everything else. Yeah, it, it's it's weird coming from from the other angle of growing up around there. Of it took me a while to realize that that's not the norm. Like the rest of the country doesn't grow up just accepting. Like um, there was this big UFO sighting my father saw in the I think it was in the seventies. He doesn't talk about it much anymore, but like it was on the radio. People were following it around. Like it was you know, mm -hmm. and that was just yeah. That's just that's life out here. That, that's yeah. We right. <laughs> well, and it still happens. It's like I. Uh... Um, there are recurrent, uh, just in the past couple of years, and I mentioned this briefly at the, towards the end of the book, but just in the past couple of years, there have been uh, recurrent uh, triangular, like large triangular UFOs that have been seen over Ashokan Reservoir and, uh, um, and the dual lights, that they're called, that move very strangely through the sky um, that have been seen over Kingston, where I live several times. In fact, I saw them once. And once on a Facebook feed, I, my, you know, my partner um, called to me from another, from another uh, room here in the house and said, I need to send, show you something really quick. And so I ran in there, and, it, and one of his friends, who happens to be a reporter for the Poughkeepsie Journal, um, I I'm not going to reveal his name, but he... Uh, he posted on his personal feed just and this was like December of just last year. He posted on his first personal feed. Uh, did anybody uh, just notice that a large triangular craft just drifted over Kingston like 10 minutes ago? Hmm. <laughs> and he put that up on his personal feed and he and his feed was inundated with with uh, people that were, you know, people that he knew professionally or otherwise saying. And one guy said, oh, yeah, that just that just floated over where I live in the Berkshires two hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was just it's just like, you know, everybody's just kind of like they'll follow it and they don't know what to do. What do you do with it? You know, so they just talk about it and then they go on. Yeah, it is. It's so strange that in a kind of uh, not to use the term, but a materialist kind of society that we live in, evidence is this, you know, king, uh, you know, when people try to find anomalous stuff, Bigfoot, et cetera, when exactly what you're talking about, there's just, they just live there. Like it's part of the, like the fabric of living in that area of the world. Why do we not have scientists, you know, posted there like daily, you know, it, this seems like a, the answer is there. It's like, you know, we found the Holy Grail and someone like, yeah, forget it. It's just a cop. We'll just leave it there. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't I, I don't have the answer for the to that because um, I, I mean, there are people who are here um, that uh, the, and some of them have some technical training. Uh, like, for example, Linda Zimmerman, who I talk about in the book and who is fairly well known, at least in the mid and lower Hudson for her work with UFO and ghost reports. She's a trained scientist. And so she, you know, when she sets up uh, an observation situation, uh, you know, she, ta she takes some of the, you know, and not the ghost hunting gizmos, but she actually just takes the plain old regular things that you should take, you know, like a tape recorder and, and you know, a good camera and, you know, things like that. And, you know, she's gotten really interesting effects. She's had, she has all kinds of really interesting photos from Pine Bush. And, you know, 
nobody, you know, scientists don't bother listening to her. I have no idea why. I have no idea what that is. I mean, the only thing I can think is is that uh, there's it's sort of a studied avoidance of something that is obvious in some way. Yeah. And, and that's the only thing, you know, I mean, our culture, lots of angles of our culture does do that. We, you know, we studiously avoid some of the most obvious and important things. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right about that. That's probably, you know, right on the surface. I guess to me, I'm just kind of, it's been a frust- not frustration is the wrong term, but like I've been into this stuff since I was a kid because you know where I grew up, and also I grew up in the '90s, where '80s and '90s, where it was that the aliens were the big deal, right, and the exactly. fact that it's so relevant, it's so there, it's within hands reach. If uh, I just I kind of want a uh, you know just a, a, a paranormal institute to show up and you know prove definitively what's going on here. Right, right, and unfortunately, what most people tend to do is they tend to, um, uh, you know, what the media does is they tend to sensationalize it. And, and that's actually what led to my writing of the book is about eight, uh, it was about probably about 18 months ago. I mean, I was going to write some stuff on paranormal things anyway, just because I wanted to, and I hadn't for a long time, but, uh, there was a production company from, uh, from the city, from New York city, that decided, I guess, that they wanted to try to put together, I finally got this out of one of their um, co-producers, that they were going to, uh, they wanted to come to the Hudson Valley and do some kind of pilot that they were then going to try to sell to like the the Travel Channel or something, you know? And of course, it was all sensationalistic. Uh, they, they, They mostly wanted to talk to, to people who report alien abductions. And they weren't really interested in some of the more complex, intricate, interesting other things. They weren't interested in cryptids at all, which they regarded as, you know, not real. And they just mostly wanted s- sensationalistic stuff. And um, what and they ended up kind of going from me to Linda to several other investigators, um, trying to get us all to sort of work for them. You know, they wanted us to not only gather up you know, witnesses and, and evidence for them, but then we had to sign away our rights to it. And we, none of us would do it. You know, we were just like, you're crazy. Are you insane? You know, I mean, this, this is stuff that we, this, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I mean, some of these things that happen to people are some of the most important things in their lives. You know, they're, they're fundamentally transformative. I'm not going to, you know, give you the name of this person so that you can exploit their story for your profit. I'm just not going to do it. Not going to do it. And so I had a conversation with Linda after we sort of sent them packing and, um, and she said, you know, somebody needs to just sit down and write a book about all the different things that happen here. And I thought to myself, huh, I could do that. And so I started it. Boy, I have to tell you, it's it's been it's been a process. <laughs> it's yeah. been, it's been hard, but um, I have finally produced something that is getting towards that. So, you know, um, but it's uh, it the the desire to make all of this either not real or too weird is uh, it's it they're both forms of denial. Yeah. And that's what you were saying before when you're going around the UFO circuit. I, I like not belonging to things because I feel like that kind of calcifies your thinking. So, like, if mm-hmm. you're a MUFON person, and this is – I'm not 
painting Mufon with a wide brush. But like a lot of the time that just means materialists. These are things from another planet. A lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of I think that screws your thinking up because the whole and you you do a good job bringing this up in the book of that kind of Jacques Vallée style. Like UFOs are a lot weirder than at least, you know, kind of the way I grew up with them would lead you to believe that these are things made out of some kind of weird metal that flew from Zeta Reticuli or whatever. Like they're related to spirit stuff and, and sometimes Bigfoot. And it it's it's a far more kind of, uh, you know, it's a it's a more complex tapestry than, you know, the standard MUFON, that one's a triangle, that one's a cigar sort of thing. Right. Well, and I mean, I think that those kinds of statistics are interesting. You know, I mean, like Cheryl Costa, who I've had, who I've had interaction with up in Syracuse, you know, she and her her wife have have put together this this compendium of uh, the databases from New Fork and uh, and MUFON. And I think that there's some interesting things, um, correlations that that you can you can develop. Um, for example, one of the some of the patterns that she has that they have finally been able to discern, even though, of course, you know, those those uh, data databases do not reflect the totality of uh, of all of the reports that people have or experiences that people have. They have been able to do some really interesting work with looking at how um, different types of UFO reports vary by region and by season. Um, and uh, and some of that information is really easy because it actually tells us a lot about ourselves and about our own sort of patterns and and what humans are paying attention to and looking for, especially in our urban societies now, because some of the some of the stuff is unexpected, like uh, some of the statistical information that she's been able to provide about like when people in New York City, the city, actually see strange things in the sky and what they see is a little bit at variance than what you might expect. I mean, some of it isn't like, you know, obviously more people are outside when it's warm than when it's cold, duh, you know, <laughs> but, or people there, they found that she found that there were actually patterns with people um, at certain times in New York city because people are out walking their dogs, you know, so st- weird stuff like that. But then what actually, what people actually do see is not, is not what, exactly what you'd think, you know, um, it, 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 that people are seeing things, especially off Long Island, that are very clearly not airplanes and very clearly not helicopters uh, because they're familiar with those things. And they don't mistake them. So it, it's it, so there's there's value to those kinds of database studies, but they don't really get you into they don't really tell you the effect of these experiences on a person and they don't get into the details about like you say how how strange some of these experiences really are i mean i went into pine bush not knowing that much about what had happened just the rumors about pine bush and you know because i'd read ellen crystal's book years ago and so I, I went there kind of thinking a certain thing about what Pine Bush was and what I found, I barely touch on it in the book because there's no way it, it is, it is just one th- very thickly layered bucket of weird yeah. there. I mean, seriously, and really some of the strangest 
um, reports I have ever heard anywhere. Um, on Church of Mabus about three weeks ago, we interviewed Linda Godfrey. And uh, she's like about the only other person that I've ever talked to that had stories that were about as weird as some of the stuff coming out of Pine Bush and very similar kinds of weird stuff. So, you know, I, I don't know what that's about, but it's fascinating. <laughs> it's completely fascinating. Well, I'd be yeah. remiss in asking any any particular weird ones that you could give us uh, off the top oh, of your yeah. head. I yeah, mean, I think... I, I think for me, what's the most interesting thing about Pine Bush is that every every type of UFO that you can imagine has been seen there. And they've been seen since the like the early 20th century, like 1906 or something. Uh, and so that's just the UFO part. The vast majority of the light phenomena that occur um, in, in Pine Bush actually are not way up in the sky. They occur at like tree level or uh, like about four feet above the ground. And they consist of lights uh, that will will suddenly appear out in a field and you, you can approach them like with other people and then they'll just sort of float away. They'll lead you around the field and then they'll just disappear. You know, that kind of stuff. Almost like, a, you know, it, it's almost like a transplant of Ireland or something, you know, of a thin place, like right <laughs> There. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but the most interesting stories and and the reason I bring up Linda Godfrey, she's the only other person who's ever mentioned this kind of stuff. But there um, during I don't know how current it is now, how often it is now. But during the height of uh, the Pine Bush experience in the 1990s, before the Hamlet started um, closing off uh, some of the rural roads to 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 um um, seekers, you know, because they were clogging the roads and causing damage, actually, you know, vandalism and stuff in some cases. They, people would come from everywhere and park along the roads and, you know, annoy annoy people who live there. So um, the town had to sort of close all that down. But at the peak of when they had the crowds there, they, they would notice um, some of the, the old guard who had been there for a long time. They would see these what can only be described, this is how they described them, as herds. They were herds or groups, large bunches of shadow creatures. And, and when you ask, what do you mean by that? Um, they would describe them as looking more, more or less sort of like animals, you know, like, uh, like deer or like large cats, like predatory cats or, you know, animals. And they would, they would, they would suddenly sort of show up and they would move through fields to, like to, towards where people were parked. And you could actually, you couldn't hear anything. The only way you could tell they were there is that they were darker than the ambient darkness. This was always at night. And you could actually hear the grass being moved aside as they would come towards the cars. And they'd sort of go, they'd sort of approach the cars. If you, if you walk towards them, they would turn towards you, like as a group, they would turn towards you. And then you, it was like you could see that they were only two-dimensional, and then all of a sudden they'd fold up and disappear. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like, and I had never heard of anything remotely like that. And, and then, but then Linda Godfrey said that they, where she does most of her work, which is you now up in Wisconsin and Michigan and, you know, up in there, that she had gotten reports of things like that too. 
And I was like, oh, my God, thank God somebody else has these reports. I, they're fascinating. And, and these were seen by multiple witnesses, like lots of people experienced these uh, shadow animals, I guess, for the want of a better word. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's incredible. I, I've never heard that two dimensional thing before. Yeah. And it would be like it would almost be like you could really only see them from the side because if they turned towards you, they were flat. You know? Yeah. So it's it's, it's really, you know, it, it makes you think, wow, you know, this must be a place where, you know, dimensions or realities actually do bump somehow. And you're catching a glimpse of another place where, you know, and you're just seeing like a glimpse of what it is. Yeah. It's, I, you know. it's interesting that they respond to, you know, somebody approaching because you, you talk about this in the book as well. And, you know, it's kind of a I don't want to say common, but uh, that, you know, UFOs and, and just, you know, phenomenon responds to the observation. Yes, it's 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 an interesting aspect of, you know, that I think that I don't know if it takes it out of nuts and bolts world, but it certainly stretches the credulity of, oh, this is just advanced aircraft, you know. Right. Well, and what it, and what makes it weird, of course, as you know, is that there is an element of technology in some of it, uh, or there does appear to be in some of it, especially the UFO stuff. There's some of it, or like as Paul Eno puts it, because he does. I don't know how familiar you are with his work, but he has done a lot of work, um, paranormal work, in places where there appear to be um, entities or beings or realities that are sort of parasitical on people, you know, and because um, he got his start in this field by following the Warrens around while they are helping them. He was an assistant, an early assistant of theirs when they would go and, you know, hunt out a place that they believed was possessed that they were going to exorcise. And uh, he, he parted company with them at a certain point because he really disagreed with some of their methods. But um, he had several experiences where, uh, he encountered actual, you know, manifestations of beings, you know, that at the time they were interpreting as, as demons. He doesn't believe they're demons anymore, but he had actual physical contact with them. Like there was one time that without he, the, something manifested next to him and it was sort of trying to get across the kitchen or something and without thinking really because he was just reacting as a human being does he tried to grab it you know or try to smack it or grab it and he actually felt stuff he said he felt like bone and skin and then it sort of slithered out from his his hand his grasp and so he came to the conclusion that at least some of these beings some of the time are either physical in the way that they are wherever they're from or when they enter our plane, they have to, in order to interact with us, they have to adopt certain aspects of physicality. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's kind of like, I don't know how familiar you are with K-Pax, the movie K-Pax, but there's, there's the scene in K-Pax where the, 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 uh, the Kevin Spacey character is, who is, is understood to be an alien from another place that is inhabiting the body of a man, a human being, is trying to explain to a therapist why he appears as a human here. And he's like, basically because that's the only option in intelligence like I, I have. You know, that's, that's the physical frame 
that is available to me in this place. And so, um, you know, that to me could explain why at least some of the things that we encounter, um, whether they're, you know, Bigfoot or whatever, that there are, that there are times when there will be physical effects from them or physical evidence from them, but it will be of a kind of, uh, kind of weird and impermanent nature. Um, Although if we think about it, even our own physicality is of a weird and impermanent nature. But yeah. <laughs> we don't really like to think that way. We like to think that, oh, our body, you know, the most, the best we can do in that regard is to, is to, is to think, well, yeah, you know, eventually I'll like die and rot or something, you know, that, that's as close as we get to that. But, you know, if you, if you, if you think about physics and how everything is really empty space, more empty space than it is solid, you know, particles, then you realize that none of us are really as solid as we think we are. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly like that, that the illusion of putting your hand on a table that your hand at no point is touching the table. It's, you know, it's interaction. Well, it's, of, you know. it's, inter it's interacting with the table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. exactly. So to me, this is, you know, a lot of this stuff is just more of the same, just in a different way. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting thing. My kind of uh, pet obsession is with Bigfoot. And I just, I, I think 10% of the reason I moved to this coast is to see a Bigfoot. Like I just, I, oh, yeah. I adore, I adore the concept. And the thing that's, you know, kind of vexing about it is the kind of simultaneously it being kind of spirit and flesh and blood. So you can see a footprint every now and again, but we don't have a body. You can try to take pictures, but for some reason it doesn't really show up on film unless, you know, the exact weird situation is exactly right, which we don't know what that is. It's it's a strange kind of deal. And it's very much it's exactly the same as the UFO stuff. Right. No, you know, it is. And, uh, you know, that the, part of the reason why I like telling the story of Gail Beatty, who is one of the people I feature in the book, is because I've actually watched her her views change over time. When I first met her back in, I guess it was 2013, she was very much a sort of hardcore, uh, you know, blood and guts, um, Bigfoot person. Um, and, and, you know, the believing that it was some kind of, uh, you know, just, just simply some kind of unknown animal, you know, that maybe was a holdover from, the ice age or something, you know, some kind of, you know, hominid primate. And it's not that she denies that there are some characteristics of, of them like this and that they have certain physical things they do. Um, but she had to have a, a series of experiences through her research before she began to realize that there was something other to other than just that to, um, Bigfoot and, you know, to the, at first, it really scared her, you know, when she when she first began getting reports and how they were connected to UFOs a lot of times. And here in the Hudson Valley, there are also Bigfoot sightings also tend to be connected to haunted places. Um, I didn't know if you knew that. But um, so a lot of the places where Bigfoot are seen repetitively are also places that are significant in other ways, like they... Um, there have there were uh, there are like native ceremonial um, things there, or there are uh, there's like a history of ghost sightings there, or something. So oftentimes Bigfoot or whatever they you know the cryptids are seen in places that are known for other things. 
And um, so when she first started getting reports of Bigfoot being connected to UFOs, it really scared her. And she would give me those reports because she knew I did UFO stuff and she was, she, I was not afraid of it. It just freaked her out, you know. And eventually over time, she has gotten to the point where she's, you know, she's much more open to the possibility of, of whatever these beings are, whatever these consciousnesses are that it's a much more complex thing than just flesh and blood beasts. Uh, and, uh, and she, and she says that she has spiritually grown a great deal from it. You know, we've all grown in the, in the field right up here in the mid Hudson Valley by getting in contact with the way natives saw some of these experiences and, and be getting in touch with that through native teachers that are here. And that has helped a lot. I think for a lot of the the Bigfoot investigators specifically, because they don't go into the woods and with the same attitudes anymore, like with guns and all that kind of stuff anymore. So, yeah, I found that interesting in the book. You were describing how like basically they had like one gun on them and it was totally hidden, you know, that the kind (laughs) of the phenomenon almost responds to if you show up with like kind of open arms and non-hostile. Right. Well, and actually the gun is more for bears or other things or even other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for Bigfoot, you know, it's because uh, you do you will run into bears on occasion. And uh, it's not that we would even shoot them because you, you have to have a license to do that here. But, um, you know, you, you can shoot them up and the, shoot up in the air and make them go away. Yeah, just scare them off. Yeah, because bears are no yeah. joke. I've seen them in the woods when I lived over there. And yeah, those. <laughs> They're, oh, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, I know it's, this is so stupid, but it's like bears are really big and you don't get that until you're in the woods and you see one. You're like, holy shit, this is like that thing could destroy me in a second. <laughs> well, and well, and what people don't know is, I mean, black bears don't actually attack humans very often. But when they do, they do eat them. Yeah. And well, and, and, you know, black. In fact, there was a case just when was it? It was only about three years ago of three kids, the young men, the kids to me, that were out hiking in New Jersey, not too far, you know, because New Jersey's not too far from where I am. And, uh, and they ran across a black bear, and it's not clear what they did. They might have provoked it in some way, but two of them got away. One of them did not and was killed. And when they went back, he was partially eaten. Oh yeah, I remember that. That was right where, very near where I grew up. So uh, a lot right, of people right. sent that story to me. Not not to sound happy right. about a kid getting eaten, but I mean, frankly, if I'm going to get killed, I hope I get eaten. I mean, it seems stupid just to waste the meat. Yeah, well, right, exactly. It just, I just hope that he died quickly because it would oh, yeah. have to be ter- terrifying. It'd yeah, oh, absolutely yeah. terrifying. <laughs> so on the on the kind of Bigfoot uh, UFO note, what do the? I mean, this is way too broad of a of a question so answer it in the way that you can what do the natives in the area you know the indigenous people of the area what is their view of these things do they think they're connected are they flesh and blood are they spirit like i think on where i am on this coast at least one of the native tribes thinks it's an actual flesh and blood thing like it's i forget their word for it but it's an actual like it's oh that's just a big hairy guy over there you know Right. Well, it depends. I mean, um, that's part of the reason why in the book, I, I, I don't say, I don't say that what um, natives experienced or talk about is necessarily exactly the same as Bigfoot. Some of them will say it is, and some of them won't. And then it depends on whether you're consulting, you know, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois 
or the Algonquin people that lived here, the the, the Muncie Esopus, because uh, they have different traditions of those critters. And um, and for the, the people who lived right in the Hudson Valley, the mid-Hudson Valley, like where, where I live right now, um, I live in Ulster County, um, they, there was a being that they referred to as Masinkwe. And Masinkwe, it was not, was, they don't say Bigfoot uh, or Sasquatch, uh, but Masinkwe was the guardian of the forest. And he had some characteristics that, that seem Bigfoot-like, you know, to us now. Um, he was, when he appeared, he was large and hairy <laughs> and he frequently made his presence known by hoots in the woods and door knocks. Um, and there was actually a, uh, he actually, uh, was in charge of the animals that human beings hunt in order to survive. So he, um, he, you had to have a good relationship with him in order to ensure that you would survive the winter. And so at, at, at the end of the harvest season, it was actually after the harvest season, traditionally there was a, a, a 12-day festival that was called the Tsinkwakan, and, uh, which means great, great house ceremony. And, they, and part of the ceremony, I mean, the ceremony involved several different things, but part of it was the summoning of Masinkwe. And... Um, I guess there were dancers that would emulate him, but according to the stories that I have heard and read, um, it wasn't considered to be successful unless there was actually a real manifestation of Masinkwe in some way that was not a person dressed up in a bear suit. And um, so that that was considered to be, you know, a good sign that hunting would be good. And so whenever you then would you would go into the woods you would you would make an offering of tobacco. The Iroquois will make an offering of tobacco and and corn mush, and that is to let the the forest know that you're that you're entering into their their territory essentially. Now, uh, for the the Muncie around here, they also connected Masinkwe to the little people, because the little people, or at least one group of little people, who were called Pukwudgej or Wemitakanis, there were a couple of names for them, uh, would travel with Masinkwe and oftentimes ride on the back of the deer that, would, that, w- that he would drive before him. Uh, and so those little people would sometimes be associated with lights in the sky. Uh, and, uh, and there are also spirit lights. I mean, I'll just tell you, I mean, I'll just tell you a real brief beginning of one of the story, the origin stories of Masinkwe, and you can make up your own mind. According to this story, um, the, um, people at the time, and this was supposed to be before the coming of white people, um, the, the people meaning the Muncie Esopus had become lazy in their ceremonies. And they had decided that, you know, for some reason they, they were tired of performing their ceremonies and they didn't even take care of their children. They had become so lazy. And so there were three little boys who were, um, who were really hungry. And so they, and their parents weren't taking care of them. So they just wandered off into the woods and which is kind of a dangerous thing to do, you know, under the best of circumstances. And, Masinkwe, and this is the way the story goes, Masinkwe saw them from his home in the sky and mm-hmm. came down and met with them and told them to, um, 
and told them some ceremonies, told them some things, that, some messages to tell the people so that they could live a better life. And so the little boys go and they, they do that. And, uh, but in the process, Masinkwe keeps one of the little boys, a sort of a surety. You know, it's like, you know, to prove, to, you know, you're not going to get this other little boy back, all you adults here, unless you do what Masinkwe asks. Well, the people didn't really believe the little boys because they were little boys. So they just didn't really believe them. And so uh, what ends up happening is the little boys go back to try to find Masinkwe and their friend. And they tell Masinkwe, you know, the people aren't believing us because we're little kids. And so Masinkwe accompanies them back to the village and instructs people on proper behavior. Oh. <laughs> but, he, but, you know, in other words, there is a connection to the sky. Yeah. You know? and, 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 of course, from a Muncie perspective, that also means from the spirit world. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so interesting. I just love it, it. Just I love how overlapping all the stuff is with other cultures. Like, I mean, it sounds kind of Irishy in, in the one side. Um, and then also it just kind of it reminds me a bit of like kind of Hindu stuff, like with the, mm-hmm. it just it's got like a Vedic kind of like, oh, this is the same kind of crazy, not crazy is a totally wrong word. Uh, over the top kind of bombastic style of storytelling. I'm like, this is so familiar. Like this is. Yeah, like this thing in the sky that wants to teach proper dharma or the, you know, the wisdom of, of living life correctly. Right. Well, and I think that, I mean, if you actually look at, you know, unfortunately, we don't have very good sources anymore. But if, if, you, if you actually look at even some of the oldest stories of, uh, uh, that you find in the European traditions, you know, the Germanic traditions, Slavic traditions, and the Celtic traditions, if you can kind of take away the glamour that we've put on top of that stuff. Um, there, are some, there are some stories like that. Like, for example, the Grimm Brothers, you know, famous uh, collection, they actually had a collection of stories a folk, folk, they they called them folklore stories that were that were not included in their collection, and those stories have been put into their own collection, which I highly recommend to people. It's called the and, and it, the collection is called the Turnip Princess, and these are unlike these stories are unlike any of the Grimm stories. Uh, they have they have occult practices in them, ceremonies. Um, and the same kind of stuff that you and I, that you're talking about, you know, where you, where it's like, you know, these beings have to come from these different places to teach proper behavior and sometimes kind of intensely, you know, and these are not at all like when you think of grim fairy tales, some of which are kind of odd in and of, the, in and of themselves, or there's a kind of a darkness in a lot of those stories, but, um, some of the stuff that they didn't include because they thought it was not rational enough or romantic enough and some of these stories represent really old traditions in Europe, especially Eastern Europe and like the North Forest. Some of them are weird and they're just as weird as this, you know, just as strange as Masinkwe's stories of beings going in and out of realities and traveling out of the heavens and traveling from the underworld. And, you know, there's this great ritual in one of the stories about how to use raven feathers. And uh, it and it, it parallels almost exactly, almost to the same words. A, a similar ritual that you find in old Zoroastrian texts. Oh, really? About how to, wow. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was like, whoa, you know, this is, this is, this is definitely Indo-European here. Yeah. But it's, but it's how to use um, raven feathers um, to compel truth-telling. 
it's huh. it's fascinating. But I'd recommend since I know that you're sort of into some of that stuff. If you can find, the, it's called the Turnip Princess. It's a great it's a great collection. Uh, you'd, you'd probably get a lot of out, out of it. It's oh no, I'm I'm so there. I mean, one Grim, <laughs> I, being kind of a language nerd, the, the Grimm brothers, so right there on my you know yay double thumbs up. And then stories I haven't read yet. Yes, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know it's, uh, th- that's what I really like about native stories here is that they they always serve a kind of. I mean, some of them are just for fun and some of them are, you know, to kind of whip the kids into shape, you know, that sort of thing. But a lot of them are they have a they have a very definite sort of point to them. And they and they talk about just very openly talk about other worlds and other beings and the uh, the ancestors that are right beside you. And um, and there's just this assumption in the languages because I've, I'm fortunately, I'm now studying like uh, Muncie, um, and, and uh, what is it, Muncie, what, one, Muncie Lenape and Shawnee at the moment. Which let me tell you, these are you think Sanskrit's hard, <laughs> uh, but uh, these languages just assume things like that. They assume a kind of quantum reality. That'd yeah, be the best way to describe it. And so um, you have to you have to be able to think at several levels all the time. Um, and, and, you know, truthfully, I think that's the way most of us used to think. Yeah, I there's a kind of, how to word yeah, the quantum state is, is, I think, the best way to word it, because that's kind of the working, I don't want to say theory, but the way that I kind of view it, because especially with the, the way the phenomenon, to, to use the word, responds it seems like we're kind of quantum locked like it's the observer effect you know the whole schrodinger's Mm -hmm. cat like the second we observe it it changes and reacts and i wonder if that's part of like you know the whole hudson valley being like you know a thin place if you want to use that term if that's i don't i just don't want to sound like some unscientific idiot but like if that's you know what's happening here or are we in a is there like, you know, almost like a quantum field happening? Like, right. yeah, like you discuss in the book um, uh, by not, not, you know, obviously not someone that we, we, we like very much, but, you know, Cornette's theories with the geom- geomagnetic anomalies. And he's saying oh, it's yeah. uh-huh. the, the whole water being, a, you know, moving water being this important thing in pretty much every culture and usually has magical properties. If. Basically, if that's what's happening, if that's where the Hudson Valley is, what it is. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the Hudson Valley, I mean, ha- it has a unique geology uh, and uh, in a state that has a unique, you know, a, a New York state that has a unique geology. And um, it not only does have this unique geology with lots of intrusions and a lot of and as a result, a lot of electromagnetic anomalies, which it does have. And, you know, and again, you know, from a geological perspective, that's normal. There's nothing weird about that. That's just the result of different mineral compounds being forced together for, for different you know, geological reasons. But then when you combine that with water and there's tons of water here, all kinds of water from, you know, from from springs to the river itself and not just the river itself but lots of tributaries and and there's lots of reasons for the water some of it's glacial some of it isn't 
Some of it, it comes from springs inside that we're not exactly sure exactly where it comes from. You know, really complicated, the complicated geology here. So uh, it's just, um, it's, you know, you combine that with the trauma that has happened here, uh, with the history that has happened here, and with all of the different groups of people that have been here. To me, you have a recipe for paranormal events. You know, all of the elements that you need that are talked about that where paranormal events tend to occur are all here in abundance all the time. So it, it makes sense to me yeah. that it would be focused here Yeah, and, no, in the, and, and in the surrounding environs, you know. Yeah, it's a good way to put it because I think that's sort of the reason why there's more kind of ghost lore, paranormal lore in Europe and places that have had so many like you know cultures taking over a culture taking over a culture and just there's there's so much you know over there's so many layers and so many people and i think there's just more time to accrue it while in the new world you know there's you know the natives who had their theories on it and then what happened afterwards yeah i think that's kind of that psychic trauma almost lets us catch up a little catch ups wow that's the wrong term but puts more, you know, whatever that energy is in a quicker time while it developed more kind of slowly in the other parts of the world where we had human habitation for, or at least, you know, city habitation for longer. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you go to different parts of North America, I mean, my view of all this changed a little bit when I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Gregory Little, but, um, he has done a lot of work with uh, the 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 mound, look at trying to um, work with uh, work with trying to help reconstruct the history of the mound building cultures in in especially North America, which were more much more extensive than previously thought. And he he actually has this huge encyclopedia, which is exhaustive. I mean, it really is, um, which he published just a few years ago that shows. Um, um, every every single known um, megalithic or uh, mound building culture that had been recorded in North America up to that point, at like a site, and it's it's all over the place. And what's interesting is that, and Peter Lavenda, if you're familiar with him, kind of talks about this too in his Sinister Forces a little bit. Um, there are some places where um, it's pretty clear that there were. Um, kind of odd and interesting intrusions, uh, ceremonial intrusions that occurred when um, the cultures that brought um, agriculture um, from Central America to North America, because that's the direction in which it moved, um, those cultures didn't just bring technology. You know, they didn't just bring these new agricultural products. With those agricultural products came religious cults. Because there were ceremonies by which you planted and did these things with these new plants, especially corn, because corn is a creation of human beings anyway. You know, it's a weird hybrid. It doesn't exist in nature. And so um, figuring out how to pollinate it and to create different varieties of it, that, that's all part of its kind of ceremonial mystique. And... Uh, uh, and what you find happening, especially among um, natives uh, in in like in the Ohio Valley, not so much in the southeast United States, but like in, from the Ohio Valley north, you know, up to Canada, 
is you find different native groups having very different reactions to these religious cults that are being brought with with this um, new agricultural technology, with some natives completely rejecting entirely the, the mound building part of it, because the problem with the mound, the mound builders is that they were hierarchical. These were central Mexican, central American cultures. So they were hierarchical. They sometimes required human sacrifice. This was not something that like the Algonquin peoples, for example, were into at all. You know, they completely rejected that. And so, but what, but what each of these groups like the Haudenosaunee and the Shawnee and the Muncie and, and as you go further north into Maine, what all of these groups um, have as part of their their sort of oral heritage, is is a what a lot because this is this is something that I found extraordinary is they have traditions of the of the different visions and conflicts that they had with these groups these groups that were coming from from Mexico sometimes armed conflicts as well. And um, so sometimes that laid down in certain places, like in the Ohio Valley, that laid down certain sort of, you might say, traumatic strata in some of those places that changed the nature of how everybody, you know, all the peoples that were interacting were, were um, behaving with um, the beings and their ceremonies and the land itself. Because like there were some, there were some natives that 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 had trouble with the idea that they should be dependent on sedentary um, crops because that changes your relationship to the land and it changes your relationship to animals and they didn't know if they liked that and so some some groups would accept it and some groups wouldn't so there's this whole kind of deep tradition between the Shawnee and the Lenape of a time when they were parts of them were one people and they split over this question. And did different things as a result of it, and actually developed completely different cosmologies as a result of it. Oh, how interesting! So, so it's really kind of, you know, the, the actually the the history of North America in this regard has not been written. And um, it, it's I'm just, you know, these are things that scientists and anthropologists are just coming to understand now, because natives are now just, well, you know, then we came and they died of disease, and you know. We, Europeans were not too hip to all this anyway. And uh, <laughs> even though there is, a, there is some vestiges of that history in European history as well, you know, there are some elements of that, um, that if you go deep into like, you know, the traditions of planting in, you know, uh, among the Anglo-Saxons, for example, in English, in England, you'll find vestiges of some of the same kinds of issues and questions. But um no, nat natives have a very complex history, and there are places of trauma that have nothing to do with uh, white people on the land. And yeah. some of those involve some of those mounds, those mound, um, those, you know, some of the, the large mound structures. Um, there's, for some natives, there's like dark magic associated with some of those places. Yeah, that's one of the kind of, I, I hope we kind of move past it with like, the history of like, you know, na white native conflict that I think it's kind of belittling to the Native Americans to think that it's like, oh, the most important thing that happened was white people showing up. It's like, oh, exactly. no, they had yeah. wars and stuff like it's not it's not, you know, forgive the term, but, you know, it's it's to say that we're the thing, you know, I'm saying we because I'm a white person, but like we're like this the one thing is like that it's, it's remnants of that noble savage bullshit from the 1800s where it's like, no, no these were real people that had thoughts and tribes and fought and, you know, 
Oh yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, I think that the, it's been a, it's been a great blessing to me actually here in the Hudson Valley. There's a, there's sort of a, there's sort of a resurgence of, uh, of native awareness, uh, because there are a lot of, uh, Muncie that are actually coming back into this area because they believe that this is the time of the fulfillment of the seven fires prophecy, which is something that is, you know, is very, a very old aspect of their culture. And so a lot of them are coming to what is their ancestral homeland, the Hudson Valley, because they, they want to be here when the earth changes happen. They don't know what, of course, we, none of us know what's going to happen, but that's why they're coming here. So there's sort of a resurgence in awareness among them uh, and, and a reconnecting people that have always lived here that have sort of been hiding in plain sight, like the Mohicans are suddenly coming out of, out of hiding. And it's really ex- extraordinary to watch. And I've been, I've been, I've been, um, graciously granted, um, you know, audience, you know, to be a, a kind of an observer and, and, uh, and been given some of these stories and, and, um, some of the, uh, some privacy, I mean, given some private information about some of this stuff, some of which I have permission to share. So it's really, um, and it's, be, and, and the whole reason is because, you know, they, th- they believe that even the resurgence of some of the spiritual stuff and this paranormal stuff, even, you know, we would call par- what white people would call paranormal stuff is, is as a result of a spiritual change that the planet itself is going through. And, and the Hudson Valley, of course, will be part of that, whatever that is, you know, so. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I, I, I don't, I don't know this prophecy, but uh, yeah, we sure, sure could use something along those lines. Well, they don't necessarily think it'll be, it'll be good for humans. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, I, oh, I thought this was going to be like a big awakening. We finally get our heads out of our asses. Okay. Well, yeah. well, that's, that's a choice that we have. That's a choice that we have. If we do that, then we can light the eighth fire. You see, that's a choice that we have. But, you know, if humans don't, well, then uh, the great, as, as one of my teachers put it, well, the great purging will have to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, there you go. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's not exactly the same as what the Hopis say, but the truth is, is that the Hopis don't know what's going to happen either. You know, yeah. nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. But, um, the, the point is, is that they believe that they believe that certain people's certain white people's interest in this at least indicates that, um, some of us may be getting a clue. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly I have such a skewed advantage because I'm just friends with, you know, weirdos. But uh, I, like everybody I know is into some form. Like, I, you know, I'm a practicing occultist. Like I've, I have a shelf full of tarot cards behind my back. And that seems to be a uh, a positive sign towards some kind of like at least a spiritual movement that, you know, is helpful. <laughs> well, at least at least you're interested in, in reading and in reading whatever signs are there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being being open to it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, New York's got a history of that. Uh, the burnt over district a little bit overways, you know, that had a, <laughs> their own oh, spiritual yeah. fault. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. New, New York State was New York State was California before there was California. Oh, yeah. So. It's uh, yeah, a little lost part of history. But, yeah, that yeah, New York is weird when you look at it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So did the um, we're kind of wrapping up, but like in the so the Hudson Valley area pre, uh, you know, white people showing up. Was the Hudson Valley known to th- 
to who you know the tribes that live there or the nations that live there um as a particularly kind of spiritual spot like let's say yes, yes. oh okay so somebody yes. like visiting there like a let's say a tribe from i don't know delaware walked up they would know oh i'm entering into like a you know big magic area well, they would know that this was a place that had significant spiritual uh, gravitas. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and there are several different, there's a lot of evidence of it in several different ways. Like, for example, um, a recent researcher named Glenn Kreisberg, and along with several, a, a number of other um, archaeologists, I mean, and these are like trained archaeologists in, in many cases, have been able to uh, begin the process of locating um, a number of large uh, petroform sites in the valley that previously were overlooked. They were just thought to be like weird piles of rocks or whatever, you know, or, or things that settlers did for some darn reason. And then they started realizing that settlers didn't make stuff like this and that a lot of these sites have significant astronomical configurations like they are they are lined up to like the solstices or you know and most importantly um, a lot of times there, there are several cairn fields there's one cairn field in particular that's just um, on the mountain over woodstock uh, and uh, it's uh, it has a number of cairn, large cairns about very carefully piled um, uh, piles of stones and they're not just piled haphazardly they have like found they're obviously built and what's interesting is that Kreisberg has noticed that if you look at these, at these um, stone configurations from above, you know, like from an aerial perspective, that they actually create star maps. So they were clearly, they were clearly paying attention to certain fixed stars or certain configurations that probably um, that that as far as he's been he's been able to tell probably connected to certain seasons of the year. When, when different, um, um, you know, ceremonies would be done. And uh, this appears to be an Algonquin habit because there are similar ancient rituals like that or ceremonies or practices like that that the Cheyenne used to do and that the Ojibwe used to do. So it, it's probably an Algonquin thing to do that. But there are sites like this all over the Hudson Valley. Yeah, my... um, from, Put from Putnam County all the way up to Albany. Yeah, my, On both sides of the river. my grandfather was a big hunter woodsman guy, but in like a very respectful way, not like some shithead. Like he was really very, you know, very connected to the earth as as well as he can be being a, you know, Polish immigrant. But he, he used to tell amazing stories about the Carnes he, he would find. And, you know, he used to call them uh, like Indian King burials. Like he's, mm -hmm. but he, mm -hmm. he had all these journals of like, and unfortunately, these journals got ruined in a flood. But it's like he just the the amount of stuff that he would find. And he's some rando guy, you know. You know, he's not surveying. So you know, growing up, it was just like this like weird thing of like, why don't we talk about this more? You know, this should be Egypt here, but yeah. Well, because <laughs> oh, no, I no exactly yeah. exactly. I know I agree. Because I remember and, the all the stories when I was a kid of the phrase was oh you know the local farmers would say oh no that was here when we built it you know like these you know, settlers were like, no, all this ancient shit was, you know, all these, the rock walls. No, we didn't build that. That's, you know, the natives had it, but you know, that weird white writing of history was, I don't know, they didn't build anything. It was all teepees and moving where it's like, no, these are, 
you know, <laughs> megalithic builders. Right. No, right. And, and a lot of the, I mean, I was, I was very lucky to be able to go on a tour of like one of these sites that has just been identified. And in fact, the, the land has just been purchased so that it will not be developed so that it can just be held there. But it has, it has, it has, I think three, what are called kidney cairns and they're huge. They're, 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 the word is ginormous. They're actually huge. And what, and what's very cool about them is that they're multi-leveled and they, they've been built in such a way that there are these like little windows or chambers in the sides. Now, you know, it's not known exactly what those chambers represented, you know, whether that was the place where spirits went in and out or whether offerings were placed inside, you know, I mean, I have no idea, but, um, none of us have any idea, but the whole site up there, and it's got like serpent effigy, effigy walls. Let me tell you, these serpent effigy walls are incredible. They're amazing. But they're all lined up like to the solstices and to true north and true south. And, you know, so it's clearly a ceremonial place, very important place. Yeah, it's super interesting. There's also, I've, I've noticed a growing um, uh, ultra weird theories around there. I, I read one that the Knights Templar were there and all oh. those sites are pointing at Europe that you could read it, that they point at Stonehenge. And it's like, oh, f I mean, not that I believe in that stuff, but at least finally North American stuff is getting fully ensconced into the folds of the weirdness, which. No, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Right. Well, and the th and what's what's and what's of course ridiculous about that is that um, all all um, Kreisberg had to do was go across the state line to Connecticut and Massachusetts and find some natives there because they have uh, they have uh, you know the related people and they to to the folks that lived in the Hudson Valley and uh, they had their own stoneworks over there you know and so they bring them and they said what do you know what these things are. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're this and this and yeah. this, and, and this is what we used to do with this. And it's like, it's it's kind of like, you know, when uh, it, it always reminds me of, you know, for a long time, we couldn't we couldn't read Mayan hieroglyphics until we got more examples of it. And then somebody had the guy who finally deciphered them had the clever idea of like asking Mayan people who live there. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, it's like, oh, my God, it's baffling. <laughs> it is absolutely baffling. Yeah, you know, he just, you know, it's like. Nobody thought, I mean, in fact, when I read that, I was like, nobody thought to ask the Mayan people who live there, like, <laughs> yeah. like God, it's like, you just, there are times when being a white person that you just, I don't know, for, for all the stupid white people in the world, I just want to put my head in something and just like grind it to death. You know? yeah. It's like, I don't even want to hear about this anymore. But well, anyway. Well, I mean, so. I've, I've, I want to find the theory behind it is I can't figure out how we've done so well conquering wise because we like white people are terrible at every like we show up without winter coats we don't know how to farm and somehow it works out like it's in the history well, of white it, people is it, impossible <laughs> well i think I, I really think in the case of north america i think it was the disease factor i really yeah. do because you know when when europeans tried to conquer africa it took them a lot longer we had they had to be a lot nastier and they didn't do it as effectively. And it's because Africans were, you know, got the same diseases white people did. And so they just couldn't do it. Um, you know, if you're talking about, uh, you know, populations that haven't been exposed to any of our infectious diseases, like any of them ever, and suddenly, you know, they get hit with 
our influenzas and our, you know, dysenteries and smallpox in waves like this. Yeah. You know, it's going to it's going to wipe everybody out. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but, um, you know, there was that there was that many there was that mini ice age in Europe and uh, that occurred in like the I guess it was the 16th and 17th century, roughly. And they and there are some scientists, environmental scientists who now believe that um, the reason for that dip in temperature was because of it was during that time that the worst and the first, the first and the worst of the pandemics in the Americas were happening. And it caused whole areas of North America and South America. It destroyed whole peoples, whole generations of people who'd been farming. And it completely changed um, for, for over a hundred years in some places, it completely changed the nature of the land in some of those places. Uh, and that it may, that that alone, enough people died and disturbed enough of what had been going on that it caused a temperature shift on a planetary basis. And if you think about that, that should give you a bit of respect for how many people died. Yeah. It's insane. And what, that, and what, yeah. and what was, and what was lost. Yeah. That's, the, that's the craziest part of the whole, like, white people showing up thing where by the time we actually started like moving west everybody was gone basically so we thought oh no there's just trees everywhere where it's like no that used to be nations and sophisticated things that got wiped out by bugs you know it's yeah, it's yeah, it's it's hard it, to get it, your head around it is i mean and i always recommend to readers you know if you can want to get a good a glimpse of the world that was because that's all we can have ever have is read the book 1491 Oh yeah, that's uh, I think where I got that from. Yeah, yeah, that's a great yeah, book. It's, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great book, and and it and it's uh, I think it's coming out in a new edition with new information here shortly. But it's uh, that's what I mean when I said that the you know the history of North America has not been written yet, and um, you know, and I and in a way I do kind of think that because what's interesting to me, getting back to the paranormal stuff, is like when I talk to Bruce Hallenbeck or I talk to Linda Zimmerman or I talk to I talked to Gail Beatty, a lot of the people who have become deeply involved in studying the paranormal here, whether they're studying ghosts or UFOs, almost all of them are eventually drawn into that prehistory. Yeah. And it's, it's something because there's, there is something there that is coming. There's some, I, I almost think of it as a reckoning. Um, maybe it's not a reckoning. Maybe it's a, a, a maybe it's an integration. Maybe it's a, a recognition. I don't know, but, but almost everybody that I know gets drawn into this prehistory, you know, um, and, and not in a really terribly guilty way because you live with that every day in the, in, in the Hudson Valley, there are native names everywhere. I mean, like Mawa, New Jersey, you know, Mawa is the, is the, the Lenape word for, for, um, friendly gathering. Oh yeah. That's Mawa was the town over from where I grew up or two towns over. Right. Yeah. My entire right. Where I grew up, my my whole town basically every street was it was a tribal name. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, all mispronounced. Which because I grew up next to Lenape Lane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's so, but it's but it's around you all the time. Oh yeah. And so and so, what's happening with the people is that they have these experiences, and for some reason, it's like then they want to know more. They want to know. They want to know where they're living deeper, and I think that that's. An interesting response to 
to that phenomena, these phenomena, you know, it's wanting to know deeper, you know, instead of running away from it. Yeah. So that's a good response to it as well. You know, gathering respect for what came before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. Uh, we're, we're kind of at the end here. So let's remind everybody you wrote Mysterious Beauty, Living with the Paranormal in the Hudson Valley. Yes. And, and uh, anything else uh, from the book you want to you want to talk about before we uh, sign off? Well, the the only thing that I the only thing I will say about the book is that it's available everywhere. I mean, you can get it on any of the um, retail sites. Um, it's available both in ebook and print book uh, formats. I will say that if you get the ebook, um, all of the photographs that are in it will be in color, which is lovely. Um, if that's if that's of interest to people. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the, the only other thing I'll say is that um, probably in about a couple weeks, I'm hoping, um, I'm putting together a website. And one of the features of the website will be uh, an ongoing and updatable Google map and where I will, uh, where all of the different places and, and events that I talk about in the book will be posted and pinned so that you can actually kind of go there and look at, get a kind of a frame of reference as to where everything is. Because I don't have a map in the book because I couldn't find like a duty-free map that I could use, you know. Yeah. So, so uh, um, hopefully in the next couple weeks, um, I will have that website up and that will be under professorwham.com. Oh, that sounds great. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. That was fun. Oh, thanks a lot for, for having me. I, I, I love to talk about this stuff, as you can tell. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, all right, everybody, we'll see you next time.